Welcome to Healing Place Church, where our mission is to be a healing place for a hurting world. We hope to enrich your life through reaching, serving, giving, and building. As you listen to this teaching, be inspired to fulfill your God-given destiny through the power of His Word. We're going to be talking with the side that says four misconceptions about Satan and demons. So that's the side that we are on, four misconceptions about Satan and demons. Now, I think it's important that we start with a quote from C.S. Lewis, and this is what he says. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. See, what C.S. Lewis is saying is, is people tend to make one of two mistakes whenever it comes to things concerning the spiritual realm. One, they just say, oh, that's all mythology, that's nonsense, and they completely dismiss it as uh, ancient literature. But then the other thing is some people say, I'm really, really interested in it, and they spend too much time involved in it, and it's easy to become unbalanced. And so, my goal here uh, for the next half hour is to give is to break down some misconceptions and help set our theology straight. Because if our theology is good, then we can interact and understand the spiritual world better. So, this is going to be the first half will be about theology. The second half will be actual. Uh, tools on how to battle the spiritual realm. So let's dive in. Our first misconception is that Satan is the opposite of God. The first misconception is that Satan is the opposite of God. When I was 19 years old, I was talking to a a theologian pastor and he was, he was, he's a brilliant man. And he asked me the question. He said, he said, he said, what is the opposite of God? And I was like, oh, <laughs> that one's easy, the devil. And he said, wrong. He said, there is no opposite of God. You see, because God is uncreated. The devil is just a creature. He's just created. You see, Satan is more accurately the opposite of a high-ranking angel like Gabriel or Michael. You see, Satan is a created being. God has no opposite. There is no opposing force in the universe that has the same amount of power or intellect or uh, sovereign grace or anything. There's no opposite to who he is. He is the only uncreated being. So where did Satan come from? Well, in Genesis 131, we know that it says that the world that God created was perfect. It was absolutely perfect. So this probably includes all of the angelic realms. So at this point in history or this point in the Bible, everything that was created was perfect, including all of the angels, uh, including all the heavenly spirits. And then in Genesis 3, we see the fall of man taking place. And so what happens is, is Satan disguised as a serpent comes and he talks to uh, Adam and Eve, all of our ancient parents. And so he talks to them and he encourages them to eat from the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So somewhere between those two verses in history, Satan's rebellion happened. 
We don't know a ton about his rebellion, but we know from Jude 6 that his rebellion was centered around the topic of authority. He did not want God's authority in his life. In fact, when he went to Adam and Eve, what did he say to them? He said, if you eat of this, he said, you will be like God. What was he saying? You will have the same amount of authority that he has. And the temptation wasn't just so simple as, oh, well, there's good food to eat. The temptation for Adam and Eve was, you can elevate yourself to the same level of authority that God has. You see, that was Satan's whole rebellion. He wanted to rebel against God's authority. So it makes absolute sense that if our failure into sin happens from trying to be like God, it makes perfect sense for our salvation is for God to be like us and for Christ to come down and submit to the Father's authority. You see, Jesus said in the garden, what did he say? He said, not my will, but your will. See, Satan, his response was, not your will, but mine. But Jesus in that garden, in the face of death, what did he say? Not my will, but yours. So here you have Satan. And we know from the book of Revelation that Satan was able to uh, convince approximately one-third of all the created angels to rebel. This is where all of the demonic spirits come from. They were former angels that Satan was able to uh, manipulate and able to uh, persuade into doing what's wrong. So I want you to write this down about Satan. He can't create, but he can corrupt. He can't create, but he can corrupt. Satan has no ability to create demons. He has no ability to create life at all. All he can do is corrupt the life that already exists. He can't create human beings. He is not a creator. He's a created one. So first question, A, where does the name Lucifer come from? How many of you have ever heard the word Lucifer before? So uh, where we get the word Lucifer from is uh, actually found in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. And Isaiah says this. He says, shining morning star, how you have fallen from the heavens, you destroyer of nations. You have been cut down to the ground. You have said to yourself, I will ascend to the heavens. I will set up my throne above the stars of God and I will sit on the mount of God's assembly in the remotest parts of the north. I will ascend above the highest clouds and I will make myself like the most high. So here is a passage in which Isaiah is talking to the king of Babylon. He is taunting him and talking about the great pride of the king of Babylon. And when you read the other parts of the Old Testament, you can see about Nebuchadnezzar and the different kings of Babylon. And one of the things that they always struggled with was this uh, idea that they themselves are God. And they believed that they should be in charge of the world and not as a king, but as a deity themselves. And so this phrase here where it's a shining morning star is a Hebrew word named, uh, the word is Hallel. And so what happened was um, Hallel was eventually translated uh, into Latin. And then it was transliterated from Latin into English as Lucifer. Did y'all follow that? 
Is anyone's brain spinning? So it went from a, so the word Lucifer means morning star or light bearer. And it is a transliteration of a translated word in a passage that's not talking about Satan. So (laughs) this text uh, has been falsely uh, understood to be referring to Satan. So his name is not actually Lucifer. That is uh, more of a myth than it is Bible. But there are a few words that the Bible uses to describe this person. Uh, first is Satan. And Satan means adversary. It means adversary. This is an actual Hebrew word, Satan. He is the adversary. Now, this is probably not his proper name. This is a title used to describe him. He is an adversary to God's people. We first see him introduced in the book of Job. Uh, in, remember I mentioned there's those gap years between the Old Testament and the New Testament? Well, Jewish scholars try to uh, figure out who this Satan was uh, mentioned throughout the Old Testament. And so they gave him a few proper names. He became known as Belial. Uh, Mastema and Semiel. Uh, those are words you haven't heard before. Those are words I didn't hear until today. Actually, I was reading through a commentary and I was like, oh, I didn't know that they had came up with these words for him. But these were names that they were trying to get him because they understood Satan is just a title. It's not actually his name. Uh, the word devil. The word devil means one who slanders. One who slanders. One who says a bad thing about somebody. Some of you know some devils at your office. Um, Comes from the Greek word diabolos. Diabolos, this is where we get the word devil from. It means person who slanders. And so again, this is probably not uh, his actual name. This is probably just a title or describing something that he does. Uh, In fact, they're gonna throw uh, on the the screen right here, they're gonna throw a list of uh, titles given to this same uh, evil entity. Uh, There's destroyer, the God of this world, the accuser, the lawless one, a liar, a murderer, a deceiver, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, the enemy, uh, the serpent. In Revelation 12, 9, it it identifies the serpent in the garden as the same evil spirit, Uh, the father of lies and the tempter. And so really we don't know what his proper name is, but we do know all the things that he does. And this list helps us to see all of the different roles that he plays in the life of the people of God. So the next question, B, was he a worship leader? Uh, you've, maybe if you've been around church for a while, you've heard uh, this mentioned or maybe explained. Where do we get this idea from? Well, if we go back to Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 13, this is what it says. Ezekiel says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every kind of precious stone covered you. Carnelian, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald. Your mountings, your, your mountings and settings were crafted in gold. They were prepared on the day you were created. Um, so this text is actually uh, a song. Uh, it's called a lament, which is a, which is a sad song. This is a sad song that Ezekiel is prophesying over the king of Tyre. Tyre is T-Y-R-E, the king of Tyre. And he's talking to him. And what happened was is Tyre was a city. uh, It it was a famous city with a huge 
poured. And during the time when the Israelites were building the temple, during the time when Solomon was constructing the temple, this city, Tyre, actually was really wealthy. And so they gave a lot of the supplies to help build that temple. And because they were so generous uh, in helping Solomon, God blessed them as a nation. But with that blessing came a lot of pride. And so this nation, uh, this big city just began to become prideful. And so here God is telling uh, this city through this song that they will be destroyed, which they were destroyed. We know that in history, Alexander the Great actually destroyed this specific group of people. And so uh, the words here, mountings and settings, uh, those Hebrew words have often been translated as musical instruments. And so somewhere along the line, somebody read this text and assumed it was talking about Satan because it mentions you were in the Garden of Eden. Well, this is an allegory. This is a, uh, this is a song in which he's painting a picture. In the same way that men and women were once in Eden and they were glorious, they became prideful. And because of their pride, they fell. This is what he's saying is happening to this specific city. So to the question, was Satan the worship leader in heaven? My answer is maybe, but probably not. There really is no scriptural evidence for this other than this one obscure passage. And so if you believe that, then that's totally cool. If you don't believe that, that's totally cool. Either way, you're totally cool. So what's gonna happen to this Satan? In the future, uh, the Bible tells us he's gonna be bound and thrown into uh, the lake of eternal fire. So sometimes we have this picture in our mind of uh, Satan. He's, he's sitting on his throne in hell, you know, and he's, he's got his pitchfork and he's like red with these big horns and, he's, and he's, 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 he's poking all the bad people, Hitler's down there, you know, and he's just, he's just having fun. Uh, that is not the picture that the Bible paints. Uh, Satan is not in hell right now. He is free to roam the earth and that is what he is doing. He is roaming the earth. He is tempting God's people. He's accusing God's people. He's doing all these other things. And one day he will become a resident of hell, not the president of of hell. That rhyme, Pastor Mike, I didn't even plan on it. You're welcome. <laughs> Write that one down. <laughs> Number two, second misconception. Oh, I like this one. The second misconception that we have about Satan and demons is the devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. So, uh, like I said, we have this picture that you know, we have, we have Satan on one shoulder and then we have the Holy Spirit on the other shoulder and they're both telling us what to do. And they're like, you know, the Holy Spirit's like, don't cheat on your taxes. And the, and the devil's like, cheat on your taxes. And the, the government owes you anyway. And, you know, and you have these conflicting thoughts. That is not the picture that the Bible paints of our spiritual state. In fact, the Bible paints us as sinners. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a sinner. Turn to your other neighbor and say, that wasn't encouraging at all. <laughs> the Bible talks about all of us are born into sin because of the rebellion of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And because of that rebellion, we have what's called a sin nature. The Bible actually uses the word flesh to describe the nature that we all have to sin. And I did a little study in all of Paul's letters to all the churches he mentions the word flesh 68 times, 68 times. 
And how many times does he mention the enemy, Satan, or demons? 18. 50 less times does Paul reference the spiritual dark forces. The truth is, is because we joined him in his rebellion, we are more like him than we want to admit. Most of the time, (laughs) most of the time when we're tempted to do something wrong, it's probably not Satan. It's probably just you. (laughs) Anyone encouraged yet? You see, Satan has limitations. We see this in scripture. A few of his limitations are uh, he is on a leash. He cannot do anything that God does not allow him to do. He is on a leash. We see this in the book of Job. He wants to take Job's life and God says, no, you're not doing it. And so he can't. A couple of things else, a couple of limitations he has is he's not all knowing and all powerful. He doesn't know everything. He can't do anything he wishes. If he did, then the world would be in a much worse state. He can't read our minds. There's no biblical evidence that Satan can even read our thoughts. And one thing that's important too is Satan is not omnipresent. This means that he cannot be everywhere at the same time. So I'm gonna say this and I hope hope you all take it okay. In the morning, when you're supposed to get up, and you have the thought, maybe I'll snooze again. Satan is probably not in your room whispering in your ear, hit that snooze, okay? That's probably not him. In fact, I don't know where he is, but he can't be in this church and in that church. He can't be anywhere he wants to be at all the time. He is constricted to physical space in the same way that we are. Only God is omnipresent, only he can be. Now, uh, truthfully, most of us have probably never had an interaction with Satan at all. Most of us have probably had an interaction with one of his minions, the devils, but Satan's probably worried about bigger fish than, you know, me. Uh, And so he's out doing whatever he's doing. All right, so uh, the Bible says in James chapter four, verse seven, it says, resist the devil and he will flee. Resist the devil and he will flee. See, this doesn't give a picture of the devil just coming in and overpowering you and he's just so strong. It's just like, talk to the hand, devil. And then you know what he has to do? He has to go. He cannot overcome you if you don't let him. You have the power of Christ in you. The third misconception is that all gods are the same God with just a different name. All gods are the same God with just a different name. So the early church, uh, the church at Corinth, um, they, they were in this situation where in their city, there were these temples that were built to idols, so to these false gods. And so what was happening was the Christians understood that these little statues, these little idols, they weren't really gods, they were just statues. And so what was happening was is they were going with their friends to these uh, temple banquets and eating at these banquets with other believers that there were uh, these idols, these banquets were dedicated to these idols and their, their whole reasoning was, well, they're just statues. It doesn't really matter. And so Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 10, and this is what he says. He says, what am I saying then? The food offered to idols, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say what they sacrifice. 
They sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord, referring to communion, and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. And so what he's saying, Paul is telling the church, he's like, look, I know they're just statues. I'm not saying that they're more than statues. However, those statues represent a God and those gods are demons. You see, false religions, all of the false religions of the world are shrouded in demonic darkness. And so when people worship those false gods, we shouldn't as Christians just think, oh, well, they're just, they're just worshiping somebody who's not really there. In fact, they may be worshiping someone who is there who actually hears their worship and hears their prayers. And this is a dark, evil spirit who seeks to destroy them and, and seeks to harm them. In fact, in the Old Testament, it says the same thing in Psalm 106, 37, talking about the Canaanite deities. It says, they sacrifice their sons and their daughters to demons. One surefire way to know if a religion is false is if human sacrifice is involved. If murder is involved, if wanting to harm humanity is involved, that is the first sign that it is demonic. The fourth one, the fourth one, the fourth misconception. And this one I want to harp on. As a Christian, I can still be possessed by a demon. As a Christian, I can still be possessed by a demon. This is a misconception. Jesus addresses this exact topic uh, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 to 45. Here's what he says. In verse 43, he says, when an unclean spirit or a demon comes out of a man, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but it doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to, check this out, my house. See him taking ownership? The demon is taking ownership. He says, I'm going back to my house that I came from. And returning, it finds the house vacant. Everybody say vacant. Swept and put in order. Then it goes off and it brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, the man's last condition is worse than the first, and that's how it will also be in this evil generation. So Jesus cast out a lot of evil spirits, but he gives this warning. He says, it's a good thing to cast out an evil spirit, but if that evil spirit goes away and then it decides it wants to come back and it finds the house vacant, which means nobody owns the house, then he says it's swept and put in order. What does he mean there? He means if that spirit comes back and he sees that, hey, look, this person's life is better obviously because there's not a demon possessing it, but this person's life is in order. This person is maybe living a religious life, doing good things, but their heart is vacant, then that spirit has the right to come back. And usually what happens is it comes back worse. Maybe you've seen this in Christianity before where uh, a person who is struggling with something, they will do better, right? They'll, they'll get better, but then they go back and it is way worse than it was in the beginning. You see, Jesus says, he gives this warning. He's like, casting out a demon is a good thing, but it's only a good thing if a new owner takes, play, takes its place. And as a Christian, 
If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you are possessed by Christ. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're possessed by Christ. Don't forget that one. You are possessed by Christ. Let me give you, I just wanna read to you a few of these scriptures. I'm gonna read them back to back to back. I want you to see what the Bible has to say about who owns you. Ephesians 1.13 says, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, for you were bought at a price. You were bought. Who owns you? God owns you. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Colossians 1.13, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. We have been rescued from the domain of darkness. Revelation chapter one, the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave him to show his slaves what must quickly take place. The Bible says we are slaves to Christ. Slaves, what does that mean? He owns us. He sent it and signified it through his angel to his slave John. So John is writing this and he calls himself a slave of Christ. And 1 John 4, 4, it says this, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You see, this is why you can't be possessed by a demon because the one that is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So the question is, what effect can Satan and his demons have on you? He can still have an effect. You know, I read this. This is so scary. Um, but there are uh, certain snakes that their biting reflex is hardwired into their brain. And if you chop their head off and they are dead, they can still bite you. Even though there is no brain activity, because it is so hardwired in, and Google this yourself, it's like the scariest thing. Uh, don't Google it before you go to bed. And, <laughs> but people have died because these snakes, though they are dead and defeated, they still have a time frame in which they can attack. And this is a picture of the enemy. Satan was defeated on the cross by Christ. And he has a limited amount of time to attack and mess with the Christian. And so what we wanna do is I'm gonna turn this over to Michael. And Michael, you can go ahead and make your way up. And Michael is gonna teach us about spiritual warfare and how we as Christians can fight those battles. Love you guys. I saw Terry drinking that water, huh? Don't let me do it. That would be gross. Terry told us what the devil can still do to us. Now, I want to talk about what we can do to him. All right? So go ahead and turn that paper over. The Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty for pulling down strongholds. We are not left defenseless against the work of the enemy. Now, tonight, we're not going to talk about techniques there's not a lot of that in the Bible. What we're going to talk about is learning to live in a state of vigilance so that when the enemy comes, not if, but when the enemy comes, you're ready. You have what you need. Amen? 
You don't have to go looking for a fight. If you're serving Jesus, a fight's coming to you. Right? Like Terry said, some people get a little preoccupied, a little overly interested in the infernal, and they start looking for the devil because they're going to go fight the devil. Don't look for the devil, okay? Don't look for the devil. He'll come to you. Don't worry, okay? Uh, Let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to talk about the weapons that God has given us, the weapons of our warfare. Starting in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of God. So now we're going to go through the elements here listed. Uh, Paul here is giving a description of the uniform that would be worn by a Roman soldier in his day. Now I know we think about the armor of God and we live in uh, Western culture, and so our mind goes to like a knight in shining armor, like King Arthur type of thing. That's not what the picture that Paul's Uh, making here. This is less King Arthur and more gladiator, okay? That kind of deal. So Paul starts uh, with the same thing that a Roman soldier would have started with, the belt. Now for us, a belt keeps our pants up and that's about it. But for a Roman soldier, the belt, this belt, was the foundational piece of the armor. Every other piece of his armor would hook to or connect to, or be secured by this belt. It kept everything in place. The same is true for us. Paul calls this belt truth. And for you and I, truth, integrity, honesty, virtue, genuineness, this is foundational for you as a spiritual warrior. You cannot fight the enemy and have any kind of victory if you are unable to fight and have victory over your own self. Amen? Like Terry said, there's not a devil on your shoulder. There's you on your shoulder trying to make you do what's evil. If we cannot live godly, virtuous, honorable lives, we have lost the battle before it's even begun. The life of a Christian should be wrapped around with integrity, with honor. The fastest way to rob yourself of victory in spiritual things is hypocrisy. To proclaim one thing and live another thing. Paul says the first battle is against ourselves. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, I die every day. That means every day he gets up and fights Not the devil, but himself. And so do we. The first battle, the first spiritual war we undertake day in and day out is a war for truth in ourselves. 
that we will live the way God has called us to live. That we will choose what is right even when it's hard. Amen? The belt of truth. Are we honest? Are we sincere? Are we trustworthy? Are we genuine? Do people want to do business with you? I once had a guy tell me, he was in construction, that he hated working for Christian or with Christian subcontractors because they always cheated him. It should be the opposite. If there's no victory in our life over our own sin, we cannot hope to fight and win victory in spiritual things. Amen? This is the first element of the battle between the God of truth and the father of lies. The belt of truth. Number two, we're moving fast. We got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Come on. The breastplate of righteousness. Breastplate. That's a piece of armor that would hang from the shoulders all the way down to the belly. Cover all the important stuff. Heart, lungs, guts, all that thing that you just don't want to get stabbed, right? A piece of armor that would cover the things that keep you alive. Protects what's most vital. And Paul calls it righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness. Why? Because all of us have a choice of what righteousness we're going to look to for life. Is it going to be our righteousness or God's righteousness? Now, we just said that our uh, actions, our behavior, our integrity is the first part of fighting spiritual battles. But this is also true, that your righteousness, no matter how good you are, is still filthy rags. Amen? And you cannot go into battle wearing filthy rags instead of armor. You will die. And you cannot face the enemy in your pride saying, I'm enough, I'm talented enough, I'm smart enough, I'm self-controlled enough, I'll have the victory because I'm so great. All we can do is fall back on what Christ has already done. Because the enemy loves to remind us about our failure, doesn't he? We go to fight the enemy, and the first thing he does is says, you have no right. Remember what you said? Remember what you did? Remember who you really are? And he tries to make us go to battle with our own righteousness to protect ourselves. And it's tricky because he's kind of right. We did do those things. We did say those things. We are guilty. But we don't come into battle with our righteousness on. We took that off. He's pointing to something that's no longer attached to us. We come into battle with his righteousness, with what Christ has done. And say, devil, you're right. I have failed in the past. I have messed up in the past. But I don't oppose you in my strength, but in Christ's. I don't defend my actions. I point to his. Our heart and our soul are sustained by what Jesus has done for us. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you're going to be good enough. You're going to be strong enough. You're not. Let that go. 
Rely on the one who loves you, who's already won the victory for you. Look to him and not yourself. Your righteousness is filthy rags, but his is glorious armor to cover you and protect you. When everybody else is accusing you, you can look to the one who made you his own. Amen? Come on, somebody. We're alive because of his gift of righteousness to us. So we've got the, what? The belt of truth. Come on, we're paying attention, and it's written on the page. And we've got the breastplate of righteousness. That's right. Uh, Number three is the most awkward. Shoes of readiness of the gospel of peace. That is hard to say. I've seen it translated shoes of peace. That's not what it says. Shoes of peace is easier to say, but it's not what it says. Shoes of readiness of the gospel of peace. Now, we're talking about warfare. We're talking about armor and battle. We're talking about blood and guts. Why peace? It's not a word we would expect to see when going through a list of equipment essential for battle, Right? But here it is, peace. What's this about? Well, uh, Roman military sandals uh, had cleats. Can you imagine cleated sandals? They would drive iron nails through their sandals so they could have better grip in battle. Shoes are all about position and leverage in battle. Position and leverage. Getting yourself where you're supposed to be and giving yourself the strength to move forward from that position. Position and leverage. Now listen, fighting our enemy is not all about being super spooky spiritual. You know those people. You've seen their Facebook posts. If you haven't seen those people, you might be that person. Spiritual warfare is not about being spooky. Spiritual warfare is about being people who are in position to do what God has said. Spiritual warfare is about leveraging who you are and what God has given you to communicate the gospel to those who need it. Fighting spiritual battles is so that you have more opportunities to share a message of peace to others. That's why it's the readiness of the gospel of peace, because every day the devil's trying to push you out of position so that when an opportunity comes for the gospel of peace to come out of your mouth, you're not ready. You missed it. God says, put on those cleats. What's the first word or the first line in this passage said, stand firm. You cannot stand firm if you're sliding all over the place. God says, put on those cleats and stand firm, ready to move forward when an opportunity comes. Because if we're out of position, if we got frustrated in traffic and so we missed an opportunity at work to share the gospel... We got mad at our spouse, and so we snapped at our kids and shut down an opportunity to teach them something. We weren't ready. 
we weren't ready. It's warfare for us to bring a message of peace to them. Put on those cleats, church. Don't let the devil push you around. Don't let the devil move you out of position. In fact, some scholars think that ancient warfare was all about both sides just pushing each other. And you stab the guy right in front of you, but you can't get to the people behind, so you just try to push him down. The devil wants to push you down like a sumo wrestler. But we cannot be caught unawares because there are people who need Jesus inside of you. Your kids do. Your spouse does. Your coworkers do. They need Jesus inside of you. And if you are pushed out of place in your heart, you can't share. You can't do right. And why are they shoes? Not just because we're going to hold our position and stand firm. They are shoes because we're running to them. If I'm here and they're over there, it's not their job to figure out a way to get to me. That's not how Jesus did. It's my job to figure out a way to get to them. The kingdom does not grow because people came to church. The kingdom grows because the church came to people. Because we're wearing shoes that are ready to run and find people wherever they may be and drag them out of the darkness into marvelous light. Amen? Put on your cleats, church. We are hustling out of our way, out of our comfort, out of our routine to reach people with good news. Amen? Come on, somebody. Number four, the shield of faith. Shield of faith. Now, we said before, uh, Paul is painting a picture of a Roman soldier, right? So they didn't use the shield like the knights use, kind of the, the rounded triangle thing, right? That was intended for single combat, one warrior against another warrior. The Romans did not fight that way. The Romans used these massive shields, almost as tall as a man that were rounded, they weren't flat rectangles, they were rounded so that he could actually get inside that shield and have a little hidey hole. Why is faith a shield? Because a shield stops an attack before it even touches you. And our faith, our trust in Jesus puts us out of reach for what the devil's trying to do in our life. prevents us from being touched by what he's doing. Faith, our being convinced of Christ and who he is and who we are and what he's done for us, the devil can't touch us. He can try. He will try. The Bible says that he throws fiery darts at us, trying to distract and tempt and provoke and manipulate, but faith says no. Faith says I've got space to hide. And what the enemy's trying to do in my life can't land on me. Now, one weakness to the Roman shield, it was a great piece of technology, but it had one limitation. And all shields are this way. If I'm holding it here, it will stop anything I can see. It can't stop anything I can't see. 
as long as it comes straight at me, it's going to hit that shield. But what about attacks from the side? What about attacks from behind? That shield is so big and so heavy, it's not very maneuverable. And so the Romans figured out a way around this. I'm going to show you a picture of some guys uh, doing something. Put that up for me, Aiden. There you go. That's called a tortoise formation, testudo in Latin. Now, those guys aren't real Roman soldiers there. They didn't have cameras back then. Every man in this unit was trained for his particular position. And when they went into battle and they're taking lots of fire from every direction, they would make this formation. They drilled and they practiced. They knew each other. They worked together. They trusted one another. Because the men in front are guarding the men in the middle. And the men on the sides are guarding the man next to them. And the men in the rear are defending everybody else behind them. That's how our faith is supposed to work. My faith doesn't just cover me. It covers those that are beside me as well. Your faith doesn't just cover you. It covers the one beside you as well. Roman shields were not made to work as individual shields. They were made to work together like this. Your faith is not made to work individually. It works best in a group. A small group. What is that? That's a small group. A group of people that know each other, love each other, defend each other, trust each other, protect each other. Because what I have faith for, you may not have faith for, and I can defend you. And what you have faith for, I may be struggling with, and you can defend me. But if I'm out there all alone, I'm going to die. Get in a small group. You can't do this by yourself. Your faith works best in a group. Number five, the helmet of salvation. Helmet of salvation. I like this. Helmet of salvation. Why not over your heart? Why isn't your salvation over your heart? Why is it on your head? That's weird. Here's what I think. If the devil can't have your heart, he'll go for your mind. And everything you look at, everything you listen to, Everything you give access into your life needs to pass through the filter of what Christ has done. Salvation is a helmet because it is the filter, the umpire, the guardian of what we allow to come in here. I don't know what you let into your mind. I don't know what you give access to in your house. But I know that a lot of the battles people fight are because they let something in they couldn't control. They let something in that got a hold of them through a TV screen, through a stereo, through a computer, and it gripped their heart, it gripped their mind, and they could not be free. Why? 
because it's so tempting to take our helmet off for just a minute because it makes it so much easier to listen to what the world has to offer. Oh, but I like this song. Oh, but that show's funny. Oh, but it's only got one bad part. I don't know what you watch. I don't know what you listen to. I don't know how you entertain yourself. But I do know there's a real enemy that wants to kill you. And he has set booby traps throughout this world customized for you. And so you and I better be careful what conversations we're going to allow to be uh, in our house. What gossip we're going to participate in at work. How we're going to think about people, talk about people. Everything we let in and out had better pass through the gate of what Jesus did for me. Amen? Come on. Don't allow your mind to be poisoned before you even get to the battle. Helmet of salvation. Number six, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our weapon, not just to defend ourselves, but to push back our enemy. And Christ is our example. Do you remember? The enemy comes against him when he's tempted, and he says, what? It is written. He does not oppose Satan with his own intrinsic power. He uses the scriptures. He uses Deuteronomy. You haven't even read Deuteronomy. God's word is a weapon, not just for defense, but for attack. Everything else on this list is for defense. This is for attack. It is the word that is our most powerful weapon against our enemy. Psalm 119.11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Why are you getting whipped by temptation and sin over and over? You don't know your Bible. There may be more to it than that, but let's check that one off the list before we move on. We believe strongly at this church in memorizing Scripture. It's why every Saturday in the devotional is Scripture Memorization Day. And we give you a verse from the previous week's reading for you to commit to memory, hide in your heart. Why? Why is that important? Because in the middle of a battle is not the time to learn how to shoot straight. It's not. We prepare ourselves ahead of time. You better know that scripture before you need it. A friend of mine was in the army, and he said they taught him to sleep with his rifle between his legs. Because if you lose everything else, every other piece of equipment, don't lose that rifle. It's your life. You need it. If you don't remember anything else tonight, remember this. You need that Bible. Not to own it. Everybody owns a Bible. Know it. Be familiar with it. Be comfortable with it. 
know how to find stuff in it. You know, I love electronic Bibles. They're fine. They're very convenient. I don't think they give you a good picture of what the Bible is really about because they break it up into, into sections. I want you to be so familiar with your Bible that when pastor references a scripture, you can see it on the page. I know where that is. It's bottom right, halfway through Joel. Because you just remember, you have a relationship with it. God's word gives you power to push back what the enemy's trying to do. So you're not just sitting around waiting. But you see the devil doing something. You see him messing with your family, see him messing with you at work or whatever, and you have word for that. Wait a minute, I got a scripture for that. Wait a minute, the Bible says something about that. And you've got what you need to defend yourself. Don't be casual with God's word. It is your sword. Finally, your battle is not just about you. Ephesians 8, starting in verse 16. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. If you're wondering where do I start in my battle against the enemy, where do I begin spiritual warfare, here are your orders straight from the book of Ephesians. Pray. Pray. This is the battlefield of the Spirit. Prayer is not the weapon. Prayer is the war. Our battle is not winning some argument on social media. That's not spiritual warfare. Correcting someone's bad theology is not spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is prayer. The warring church, the victorious church, is the praying church, and there's no other way about it. This is where we live or we die spiritually. Listen, you could spend your whole life in prayer, and it would be a life well spent for the kingdom. There are names that are great in heaven who never did anything more than get in a prayer closet. God does not equate greatness with fame or influence as we count it. If we want real influence in the spirit, if we want real victory in the spirit, it will be found in the prayer closet. We don't fight with prayer, we fight in prayer. All the stuff we've just talked about, the sword and the helmet and the breastplate and the shield, these are things that we put on to go to battle, to go to prayer. If we put on these things and fail to pray, we're like those guys in the picture. We look great, but it's not a uniform for them, it's a costume 
There's no battle for them to fight. They're not invading Carthage. They're not real soldiers. They're pretending. They're playing dress up. Church, we cannot afford to play dress up. To put on the armor of God and fail to pray. What have we done? What have we done? If we're going to have victory in the spirit, it's going to be because we committed ourselves to prayer. Pray, church. Pray, church. Do not shirk your duty. Do not trade time with your maker for the cheap, empty pursuits of this life. Do not surrender the field to the enemy so that you can sleep a little longer. Watch more Netflix. Play more Fortnite. Chase that promotion. Failure to pray is worse than surrender. It's not even showing up. Pray, church. Pray for your wife and your husband. Pray for your kids. Pray for your coworkers. Pray for this nation. Pray for our leaders. Pray for your pastors. Pray. This is the battle. This is where we win. All of our church business rises and falls on prayer. No matter how many hams we give to fams. No matter how many serve days. How many churches we paint in third world countries. None of that makes eternal difference if we do not pray. But if we pray, even a cup of water becomes eternally powerful. Even a smile becomes a thing that opens a door for people to receive Christ. You hear stories about how people got saved, all kinds of crazy things. Why? Prayer. It's not the quality of the messenger, it's the power of the message and the prayer that accompanies it. Pray, church. Pray, church. This is where we win. This is where we fight. And we are promised victory there. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Healing Place Church, go to healingplacechurch.org or give us a call at 225-753-2273.